Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Saturday. We kick off today's show with some local sports news. 26-year-old windsurfer Amanda Ng has qualified for the Tokyo Olympics under very challenging circumstances and I'm glad to have her on the show today to talk to me about her adventure. Hi, Amanda. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Just before we start and get into the interview, I understand that you are now serving your stay-at-home notice, isn't it? Yeah, I'm still on my stay-at-home notice. I've but it's my last day, so yeah, quite excited to get out as well. <laughs> what kept you busy the last two weeks? I'm assuming it's a 14-day stay-at-home notice? Yeah, it's, it was 14 days. Um, I mean, with my knee injury, I actually had quite a lot of rehab to do during these two weeks. So it's actually been a good time to like just get my knee sorted and also, yeah, just plan out like my training program for the next few months leading up to the games. You know, I also don't want to sound like a broken record because I asked every athlete on my show, 2020 was a weird year. How did you manage? But I suppose this is a bit relevant now that you just served the two weeks uh, stay-home notice. How was 2020 for you? Yeah, it was definitely very challenging. I mean, the qualification process was very long drawn. Uh, my qualifiers were postponed twice due to the pandemic. But I mean, I guess being like stuck in Singapore, not being able to travel also gave me the chance to uh, work on my injuries, work on my basics, which I think helped me prepare better for my qualifiers. You know, when you look at whatever's happening with the Tokyo Olympics being postponed and stuff like that, at any point, did you feel that you might not get a chance to go to the Olympics and the Olympics might not happen at all? Um, Definitely. I mean, with all the news coming up and like, Japan still being in quite like a state of emergency I think there's definitely that fear and that's there still is that fear but um I think I've learned to I mean I've had practice over the last year I've learned to really mm. just focus on my training and just have my sights set on the Olympics and whatever happens happens but Right now, I'll just do what I can to prepare the best I can. Let's talk about the Olympic qualifications because you needed to finish first in the Musana Open Championship in Oman. And how was your approach to this event knowing that you needed to win this to qualify for the Olympics? Mm, yeah, I mean, uh, I guess a lot of things had to like came into play with my preparation. I started working with a new coach actually just over a year ago. And... Uh, he felt that it was really important for me to focus on the basics and work on like my board handling so that I would feel more confident on the board and be able to race at a higher level. So this actually allowed me to improve more my fundamentals despite like the lack of sparring and racing opportunities because we couldn't travel. Um, my coach also actually arranged racing sessions with the younger windsurfers to help mm. simulate the starts and racing situations for me. So it was actually very important for me to stay focused on my training and the more I felt prepared, the less I felt the nerves of like having to win this. Yeah. Mm, that's amazing. You know, to make matters worse and more dramatic, you picked up a knee injury after a fall, <laughs> which was quite close to the start of the competition. And you must have been going through a roller coaster of emo emotions. And how did you manage all of that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I actually fell literally just one and a half days before the competition <laughs> started. But I think when I first fell, I still tried to remain quite positive. I was just telling myself like, oh, it can't be a serious injury. And tomorrow, like I'll be completely fine. But I mean, as I hours passed and the pain just kept getting worse, I think panic started to set in. 
And yeah, definitely a roller coaster of emotions. Uh, I think what really got to me was when I went to the hospital and like the doctor was like, yeah, you're definitely not racing. This is a tear and wow. you have to be in bed for one week. I think I was just like distraught. But I think it really helped that everyone around me, like my coach, Ryan, like the Singapore team, uh, my friends at the competition, they remained really positive. They tried to cheer me up, take my mind off the injury. And mm -hmm. then when race day came, I mean, it just gave me the confidence to just get out there onto the water and do mm -hmm. my best, whatever the outcome may be. Can I ask, how did you fall? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. It was like after a training session, after my last training session before the race, um, I was carrying my board up, some like marble steps. So, you know, water and marble is never a oh, good combination. No. <laughs> I literally like just fell flat and like the board squished me as well. So like the impact was even greater. So when oh, I fell, God. I twisted my knee and yeah, that's how I tore the MCL. Oh, you tore your MCL because I've had that injury in the past. It's not funny and it's not no fun, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was going everywhere in a wheelchair. Did your knee lock up after you, you tore your MCL? Because that's what happened to me. Where my knee kind of locked up. I couldn't bend my knees afterwards. Yeah, I couldn't bend. I couldn't straighten. Like, literally was stuck at like a 50-degree angle. You know, it's amazing. You still competed. And why and how? Where did you find the, the strength and the power to go on? Uh, yeah, I think, I think um, having the moral support really helped me. Uh, I think firstly, thank goodness my coach, he had like a similar injury on his ankle while in, like during his racing days. So he knew exactly how to deal with my situation. He would like uh, rig up my sail, rig, uh, get my board down on the beach, launch, recover everything for me. And all I had to do was like get myself into the power boat. So mm. that really helped me. I mean, like knowing that he knew exactly what to do. It gave me the confidence like, okay, I'm still going to go out there and race. Like, he knows what he's doing. And also, like, everyone back home, like, receiving words of encouragement from them every single morning before my races and knowing that they were all rooting for me. And, like, that really helped me get through the challenging week because I never once felt like I was alone. And, yeah, it really spurred me on. I mean, isn't this uh, just a great story about, you know, perseverance and what sports really teaches you, right? You know, you work against all adversities and you know you qualified for the Olympics with one leg really. Yeah. <laughs> right? Isn't yeah. that just a great story to tell? <laughs> yeah, I mean I think really like I, I really was very fortunate to have like the help of so many people. Like I I had my coach who would tell me, okay, this is how you should tweak your windsurfing technique in order not to like aggravate your knee so that it can last six days but like wow. still be able to sail fast. So, yeah, I think, and everyone, like the organizers, everyone was like helping me get ice every, like the moment I'm back on shore, like ice, ice, ice. And mm. like the physiotherapist there would also help me like keep my knee up really, really good before I went out on water. So, yeah, I guess like, yeah, I'm really fortunate to have like all these people around me to help me through the week. I think this is a moment where you start feeling the importance of a support structure around any athlete, right? I mean, you mentioned your coach quite a few times. I, I picked that up. Without that kind of experience, do you think you would have managed to qualify for the Olympics? Uh, actually, like to be very honest with you, like if I didn't, I really don't think I could have done it without my coach because mm. he literally helped me through everything. Like 
I wouldn't have, I couldn't even stand up to rig my own sail and board. So mm. like having him there to help me do everything and then like telling me like, okay, this is how you need to like get about your racing. You know, honestly, when you're like in so much pain, you're just not thinking, right? <laughs> like out on yeah. water, I'm just like, I just need to get through this. <laughs> so he would be like, okay, this is how you should start. Okay, just like one tech to the mark, that kind of mm. thing. All right, let's take a short break. When we come back, we continue this conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Saturday. I'm joined on the show by Amanda Ng, national windsurfer, who will be heading to the Olympics in Tokyo. Amanda, just before the break, we were talking about how you qualified for the Olympics in some spectacular fashion. (laughs) I must say, well done on that. But let's talk about the Olympics because Tokyo will mark your second participation in the Olympics after Rio 2016. Let's talk about the Rio 2016 Games. What was that experience like for you? Um, Yeah, it was my first Olympics. It was really quite an amazing experience. Uh, I mean, we were sailing in the Guanabara Bay, which mm. was super memorable. Um, like sailing under the iconic landmarks like the Christ the Redeemer statue. i actually been there. It's so spectacular. Yeah, it's amazing, right? Yeah. yeah. And then like being in the same games village as like those spotting stars like Nadal and Usain Bolt and just seeing them like a few meters away from you, it was really such a cool experience for me. You know, I just want to pick up on that point that you just mentioned. I mean, you are a windsurfer. Perhaps windsurfing doesn't get the same sport like maybe like tennis or even the 100 meters track and field meet and stuff like that, or even football for the matter. How do you then see yourself fitting into this whole Olympic movement? Are you just there to soak up uh, the atmosphere? You're there to compete? You're just happy to be there? What sort of emotion? Because I've never been to the Olympics and I always think about what will it be like to be there just among these stars, you know? Yeah, I think five years ago, I was still quite young and fresh. And like, Mm. um, for me, it was really just a very uh, eye-opening experience. Um, But I mean, like coming to my second Olympic Games, definitely like it's it's, now it's about taking what I've learned from before and really performing at the best of my abilities. You know, you said it's been five years since the last Olympics. A lot must have happened since then. What sort of events did you participate in and where do you see yourself, I mean, when comparing back to what was your standard like five years ago, how would you rate yourself like in that sense? Uh, okay, I guess um, like over the past few years, I've been like to the Asian Games, to the World Championships and like all these additional race experience that I've gained will really be very valuable for me when I head to Tokyo. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, like I've also been working with a new coach who has helped me improve my board handling and sailing technique. Uh, I've seen, I guess we've seen some really positive improvements over the past year and I hope to translate all these into my racing in Tokyo. You know, let's talk about these, your knee injury. Um, how bad it is? Uh, is it in the sense that, of course, now you are doing rehabilitation and stuff like that. And do you think you'll be 100% because we are less than 100 days to the Olympics? Yeah, I mean, it's been two weeks since I started rehab for my knee. And I mean, I'm very fortunate to have been sent like a bike and weights training stuff to use during my SHN. Uh, I mean, I've already been seeing good improvement in my knee and I'll be seeing the doctor once I'm out to get cleared for my return to windsurfing. But I mean, with my previous consultation with the doctor, he's quite confident that I'll be ready and in good state for the games. Um, I mean, I could even race with it being like a full-blown MCL test so I think I'll be okay (laughs) 
Yeah, you've proven that, that's for sure. I want to talk about the situation in Tokyo. I'm pretty sure you're keeping one eye on that. Are you worried about the situation, the COVID situation in in Tokyo? I mean, I guess I I am a bit worried. But at the same time, like, as I mentioned before, I think like what all of us, the only thing all of us can do right now is just to focus on our trading. And I mean, control what we can control and just let things happen, I guess. What about vaccination? Have you got your vaccination? Yeah, yeah, I got vaccinated before I headed to Oman. I see. And what does your family think about all of this? And, you know, the way that I suppose whatever happened in Oman and now you're again going into dangerous way in in Tokyo. Uh, Are they supportive? Are they worried? I'm pretty sure your mom must be worried. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think... I think in general, like since young, my parents have been very supportive of like my my sailing journey, and uh, they are, they are not really like people who will be like, oh, like it's too dangerous, you shouldn't go. But they were very like when I first sustained the injury, my parents were like, okay, if you think you can take it, then just go for it. Otherwise, mm-hmm. like it's okay if you can't if you can't deal with the pain, it's okay. Like you know, it, like we're here to support you. So I think. I think whatever it is, my parents have been very supportive. And yeah, uh, that that's really helped me in this entire journey. I'm just wondering, do you know the route where you'll be racing in Tokyo? Yeah, um, I actually attended the World Championships there in 2017. It's in Inoshima, so not in Tokyo itself. And what do you make of that course? And what do you think are your chances? I think, uh, I mean, the weather there was quite crazy, actually. Like... Um, very unpredictable. There, there were a few times when I was there in 2017 that we had typhoon warnings. Wow. So yeah, safety would be quite a big issue there, I guess. And also it's sailing in, in conditions that we don't have in Singapore, like waves and wind. So I think um, it's definitely very important for me to, to be able to train in those conditions. So hopefully we can enter Japan early enough. And I also have plans to head to Hong Kong for a training camp just before that, Mm. just to get more sparring opportunities and also better wind and waves condition. I want to pick up on that because you did mention that you want to head to Tokyo early, but also want to do a camp in Hong Kong. So in normal circumstances, you probably say, yeah, that's easy. Let's pack up the bag and go. But now there's a lot of logistics behind this because of the travel bubble and all of that. So how are you navigating all this? And I'm pretty sure your team around you helps you as well, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, my coach and I have prepared like five contingency plans just in case <laughs> like, like, yeah, the COVID situation wasn't. But really like the planning is, has been quite crazy. I mean, you have to do a lot more and uh, take into consideration the quarantine periods and whether it's worth it come back to Singapore or like fly straight to Japan, that kind of thing. So yeah, we'll have to take all this into consideration when planning my program. And when do you kind of aim to be in Tokyo at least? Uh, from what I've heard, they've mentioned that Tokyo will only be open from end June onward. Mm-hmm. So I plan to head to Hong Kong for a month before that and then head to Tokyo once they open up like the venue for training. Is there any particular objectives you have for this Tokyo Olympics? Have you set yourself a target, something that you would like to achieve and think that, hey, you know what, I've uh, done this? Uh, I think for me, I've already seen like positive improvement in my abilities and I hope that I will continue with this progress um, up to and even during the Games. But as for the Games itself, I'm just really very excited to take what I've learned 
over the past few years, what I've improved on and just do my very best at the game. You know what? I'm so jealous and envious of you, you know, think, <laughs> talking about going to the Olympics because never had a chance and just feels like it's an exciting time to be involved in, in sports, even though the world is facing a pandemic, right? You know what? I wish you the very best. Thanks for taking time to come on the show and, and sharing your adventure. You're definitely one person that we'll keep an eye on for and wish you the very best. Thank you so much and thanks for having me today. Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Saturday. It's time for The Rant, a segment where we talk about anything and everything in sports. And joining me on the show, as usual, are Des Kokil and Philip Go. And if you'd like to share your thoughts on the topics we will be talking about, the number to dial is 669 uh, Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you very much, Sassy. Hey, listen, uh, just listening to Justine's news bulletin there, uh, it's obvious that sport is the most important of the unimportant things. So that's the context for today's show. But my word, my word, is it rantable? Your show was designed for this week, I think, Sassy. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Phil, you know what a week of sports it's been. Um, you know, it's obvious that we're going to be talking about something that can really turn up the temperature. Today is a bit cool, but uh, we're going to be, let's say, warming up the audience in a bit. Oh, quite, quite obviously, it's, it's been the most wonderful week of of sports, starting with uh, Charlton Athletic beating Plymouth Argyle six 0 and that that was great for me. And and after that, everything just went up. So you know, what a week! Yeah, exactly. Uh, again, if you are listening to the show, it's obvious that we'll be talking about the European Super League. Uh, the news of the Rebel League dropped like a bomb, and the world of football turned on its head as it became a media frenzy and online chatter. Des, I'll come to you first on this. What was your initial reaction to the news? Uh, my initial reaction to the news was welcome to my argument for the last 15 years. I've been increasingly concerned about the obscenities of the, of the money going in, about the money grabbing of the elites. I've consistently spoken about it on broadcast. I've written about it. And so uh, when, when eventually the, the, the big six went just a little bit too far, it, 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 it's, it's always been too far for me for, for, for decades uh, so I thought, hey, welcome along to, to, to the argument. Glad you've seen it. But my word, you're about a decade too late. Mm, exactly. You, you know, Phil, you don't support a certain club. I, I know you're a Charlton fan. doesn't really matter. Like me, Everton, don't really matter. Uh, you, so you're kind of neutral in that sense. What, do you what did you make of the news when it first broke? I, I laughed, to be honest with you. I, I, you know, we, we, we visited this topic um, Last year, in October, I believe, when uh, they, they came out with this big picture thing, right? And then suddenly, mm. we had this ridiculous situation on Sunday night when they just came out and said, that's it, guys, you know, we're going to set up this new league. And I was, I was just thinking, how is that possible? How, how are you going to pull this off? And, and then, and when the reaction started coming in, and, and then it snowballed, that was when I realized, okay, I think these guys have just, you know, opened up a, a massive Pandora's box. And and it was, it was crazy, the reaction that came out, including no threats of, of banning the clubs, banning the players from future competitions. That was when I think, you know, they realized that, yep, this is, this is not good. And then the next 48, mm. 48 hours was just pure mayhem. If you're listening to the show, I just want to jog your memory back to 2018 because Germany's Der Spiegel reported on a European Super League after uncovering documents from the football leagues outlining the competition. And Florentino Perez uh, is the Real Madrid president. He's the main man behind this project. Uh, Des, I want to come to you. You know, over the last couple of days of the week, 
Perez has come out and said many, many things, and he says that the, the Super League is not dead, he's now pointing fingers and stuff like that. Did you expect him to be spearheading something like this? Um, yeah, I mean, the big clubs have... Let, let, let's try to step back a little bit here. And um, what football and what, what football is now is a business rather than a sport. And that's always been my argument. It is, to me, a sport that, uh, has, uh, that uh, has got a business element to it. But now it's business over sport. And so if your, your um, potential business is in jeopardy, uh, for Real Madrid and Barcelona, a billion in debt, and for Liverpool and Manchester United uh, and, and some other clubs, then they have got to look at the ways of looking after their business. And I, I, there is sympathy for that because they're in a very competitive environment. Their, their costs for their own faults are escalating massively. Um, and so you, they, they need to look at looking after their business. And then their big argument is that, listen, the business is actually us. It's not the smaller clubs. It's not the Burnleys. It's not the uh, Levantes. It's not the Sociedads. It is Real Madrid, Barcelona, Atletico, the big six in, in England or uh, whatever six you choose and the, the Italian ones. And so from a purely um, business enterprise, yes, I understand it. And I, I, there are sympathies and there's arguments and um, justifiable arguments that they deserve uh, to have a bigger slice of the cake. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised that it was Real Madrid and co. I was surprised that the sovereign funds um, and the states and the, the Abramoviches and co joined in because they don't need the money. Perez, Barcelona, Liverpool, mm. Man United, in inverted commas, need the money. Uh, the sovereign funds don't. So I was a little bit surprised that they were so quick to jump on. I'm not surprised that they were the first to jump off. Um, but then, it, so it's the fundamental issue. Is it a business or is it a sport? If it's a business, let all, all rules go out the window. If it's a sport, then you fight like the fans did and the players and the coaches to their credit to actually keep it as sporting as you possibly can. I still think it's massively, massively over the top and the elite are still massively, massively uh, disproportionately uh, wealthy compared to, to the rest. But um, from, from a Real Madrid point of view, I absolutely understand it. They've got a business to protect. Hmm. Telev television money is the key ingredient in uh, European Super League recipe, right? Because building a competition with the best clubs in Europe will eliminate the predictability of the Champions League group stage field. They are really against that. They, they want to be rewarded for their brand, um, their games, and everything is about them. And do you think that is the trigger for fans? Uh, I mean, uh, when I first heard about it, I wasn't... I wasn't very sure, like, what's the big difference between this and the Champions League and why are people getting upset? Um, like Des said, it's, it's a business, right? It's become a, a business now. But when, when you look, when you dive deep into it, when you look at the numbers, actually, it all doesn't add up. When the Super League, they're saying they're going to get up this, this much money and stuff like that. It doesn't really add up. Is it more on a power grab rather than just money itself? Well, I, I think it's, it's, it's purely money. And I think there's misplaced optimism there. Um, mm. We've come, we've come absolutely a long way from the days when you know TV was just pure black and white, and you get six or seven live telecasts from Europe every year. I mean, we grew up in those days um, when, when you know, you get to watch the European Cup final, you get to watch the uh, UEFA Cup final, the Cup Winners Cup final, the FA Cup final. Those are like the half dozen matches that we get to see live. Now there's a live match every day, and the, the TV money is huge. I, I've been working in, in the media industry for the last 20 plus years, Sasi, and I remember those days when I was working with Singapore TV 12, 
and we were the broadcast and TV12 were, were the broadcast rights holders for the English Premier League and we were showing like one or two matches every weekend uh, and and then they they started fiddling with the uh, putting the the matches in separate slots so that you can have four to six matches every weekend or one of those things and when ESPN which is where Des and I worked together started broadcasting all the matches uh, live that was revolutionary at that time I mean now it's an everyday thing so uh, the, the TV money um, debate has gone on forever and I, I have I have to say in, in a roundabout way Singapore is responsible uh, in, in a roundabout way for this yes. kind of situation mm. as well because yes. the, the, mm. the rights battle that we had here, drove up the, the, the prices for, for Premier League football and subsequently a lot of other properties as well. So we gave them the impression, we gave Europe the impression that Asia is this huge huge money pit that they can dive into. And they, they, are, they are trying to come up with various different ideas of what they think the Asian audience want. And, and this time around, they're talking about what the African audience want. And they all seem to think that if the big clubs play each other week in, week out, we're going to be rolling in, you know, in, in cash. We're going to be bringing in the cash by, by tons. I think that's a misplaced <laughs> optimism. I, I don't think anyone, like myself, would I want to watch a competition like this where it's always going to be just these few few teams playing and there's no merit in, in them getting into the competition or fighting for their place in the competition? I think the novelty will wear out for me within the first couple of seasons anyway, but I'm speaking strictly for myself. But there are lots of fans out there who think that this is going to be the best thing since sliced bread. So, you know, I can't speak for every fan. I think this particular format is a failure. Um, but obviously, they're mm. willing to give it a go first before they call it a failure. Yep. I'll tell you what, uh, hold that thought because we go for a quick break. When we come back, it's a very interesting point you brought up. So let's uh, talk about that when we come back from this break. Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Saturday. Joining me on the show today are Philip Goh and Desko Kiel. If you've been listening to us and you want to join us in the conversation, you can call us at 669 uh, Gentlemen, just before the break, we were talking about you know the money that's going into the television money. And in the background, as Phil was talking, Des, you kind of agreed to it. I want to jump to you on this one. Do you think uh, Asian broadcasters are responsible for this? Because at some stage, the Premier League was going for the bid by Singtel was like 300 million for three seasons or something like that. I don't know the exact number, but it was something ridiculous as that. Do you think we kind of set, set the pace for the rest of the world and maybe even played a role in getting these guys to be greedy about what they can really pick out of Asia? I wouldn't put a, a responsibility or like a blame for them. Uh, Singtel and Starhub and, and the broadcasters, Astro up in, in, in Malaysia, they've got a business to run and they're looking at their business strategy as saying, OK, what's what's the best way for us to make um, make a, a, a cash? And uh, what do our viewers want? And viewers have wanted the English Premier League. Um the, the problem of once you hit the Super League and the Midweek League was that the games were going to be at three o'clock and four o'clock in the morning and ratings are proven to drop. Even for the really big games, even for the Champions League final, they're proven to drop at those times. That made the America's market and the African market uh, more important perhaps than Asia. But yes, the worldwide global appeal uh, from broadcasters and the rights paid by broadcasters as well has, has just made the English Premier League this money pit. And, and again, I, I repeat... I understand where the big clubs are coming from. The ratings regularly, regularly show that these top six clubs and Barcelona and Real Madrid are the ones that people want to watch. Burnley versus whoever does not generate an iota of the same interest. 
not even an Everton or a Newcastle who are two hey, relatively are popular, popular clubs. <laughs> and, 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 and we'll get on to VAR in a minute, by the way, Sassia. <laughs> Let's work about that. But, you know, not even the, the, the big clubs in England generate that same kind of passion here. If they started winning, I think they would do. So as a business, I understand it, but it goes against all, all kinds of ethics of, of, of genuine sport. Um, again, just to answer uh, one of the next criticisms was I, I actually foresaw that these two groups of 10 that are, are suggested would soon become four groups of five and divisional titles so that those who are saying, oh, there wouldn't be any interest, they'd have a northern group where Liverpool and Man United are competing for a divisional title, as in America, before going on to uh, the playoffs. Mm. So I could, I could see the way that um, uh, a Super League could keep people's interest going in four different regions. So uh, as a sporting contest, I could see it working. I'm just utterly against it. Now it's the 14 Premier League clubs who are upset. What about the teams, the Berries? What about your Accringtons? What about your clubs who have been left out of this um, uh, of this this pie? And that's just in England. Uh, that's that's where I go. That's where my real objection is. These elite clubs are just sponging up all the money that should be across the most socialist game uh, as many clubs as possible. Mm. I just want to pull our conversation back to um, the way they actually announced it because they seem to have done. You know, no PR alongside the announcement. The website seemed to be rushed, and the whole thing seems to be a little bit half baked as well. Did you feel that way, you know, Phil? Because uh, you know, you've been in the media, like you say, it was just looked as though it was just rushed, and no, no real thought went behind it. What well, Sasi, we we know exactly why they had to announce it on a Sunday, right? Uh, this this is a period where they've been discussing the uh, the revamp of the Champions League. Mm. At the same time that they were they were getting together to to put this runaway rebel league, whatever you call it, super league, etc., etc. While they were trying to get all these details down pat, they were also on the other side negotiating with the UCL, uh, with, with, with UEFA, how to actually make a more profitable um, uh, UEFA Champions League with a lot more games as well. So they, they, were, they were trying to get the best of both worlds. And when, when they realized that the UCL, um, the, the Champions League announcement was coming up this week, they had to do something. They had to declare their hands. So, so the whole the whole thing was so rushed. And and you know the one thing that I don't like about how they've gone about this business is they keep talking about themselves as the super clubs, right? Six six out of the twelve are English clubs. What they fail to to realize is that their reputation has been built over a century of football played against smaller clubs. It's guys like us, Charlton, and all that being beaten by them that created their reputation. And, and, and every, every other club, every small club that has met them along the way has played a part in actually building that fame up for these big clubs. And suddenly they turn around and say, we are too big for you guys now. And that absolutely strikes at the core of football. And that's why everyone's come up in arms and, and shouted this down. Mm. You know, that's a really good point you make, uh, Phil, because never thought about it that way. And uh, it still puzzles me how Arsenal and Spurs got involved in the, in the group of elite, because when you look at uh, what they've achieved, and you know, there are a few clubs there, uh, Manchester City, they've never won the Champions League. So I'm not sure how they went about uh, selecting them. It must be connections. It must be money along the way. I, I suppose it's who you know. All right, time for another break. When we come back, we continue with this conversation.
Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Saturday. This is The Rant and joining me in the show are Desko Kill and Philip Go. And if you've been listening to us we and you have something to say, um, please give us a call at 669-11938 or send us a text at 963-11938. And on that note, I'd like to thank Alex for the text message. He went on to say, Morning Sassy, love your weekend Sports Talk shows always. The only venue now, in my opinion, all things sports from a Singapore point of view, one of the few programs I look forward to every weekend. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, we really appreciate, you know, supporting the, you supporting the show and fans like you listening in. Gentlemen, you know, let's move on from where we left off. Um, I, I started looking at the clubs and the ownership groups, right? Because uh, you've got to keep in mind that obviously Manchester United, Liverpool, Arsenal, they are all American-owned. You're talking about liberal free market capitalism, which is driven by business interests and not really fan interests. Now, that stands in contrast to, if you like, the social democracy of uh, Europe, particularly in Germany, where there's more social uh, democratic model of football uh, governance you know i'll come to you uh, first um phil on this one um, what did you make of it when you know that there's a huge american influence behind this movement as well i i, I had a few choice words which are not suitable for 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 radio right now to be honest yeah okay let's but not I, go there I, I, look at the, <laughs> I, I look at the american model and and i laugh because you know for the longest time and i've been a sports reporter for for quite a few, quite a while now, you know, we always laugh about how the Americans play baseball and then they call their their own, you know, playoff finals the World Series, and then you <laughs> kind of ask yourself, yeah, right. So it's the World Series, right? Um, you you you've got all these clubs that are based in the states, they're playing each other, then you call it World Series. Hey, tak malu, you know? You know, that, you know but 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 uh, you know, I got to stop you there because I actually re- uh, researched that the World Series is actually not what the World Series as you think it. World is supposed to be a brand, like it's a branded series. So I'm not quite right. sure. I've uh, you know, if memory serves me right, and I've done this research before. Anyway, go on. Yeah, but so so you know, you kind of think like so these these Americans they want to make this make this into a very elitist type competition and all of that right and and then i asked myself the question look there's been so much debate about this this whole esl thing and and there are some people out there saying that it is the fault of the fans because we've been demanding them you know demanding that the club that the clubs that we love you know keep winning trophies and therefore the clubs feel pressured and therefore they've got to go out and spend the money to buy the best players i don't buy that argument I don't buy the argument for the simple reason, like you, you try and tell me why Barcelona and Real Madrid are over a million, a billion euros in debt. Nobody tells you to, how to run your club that way. You chose to run your club that way because you feel you need to run your club that way. And, you know, you, you can run your club in a fiscally responsible way, but you have to accept the consequences. I mean, Arsenal, for the longest time after they built the, 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 their, their, their new stadium, decided they didn't have the money to compete and therefore they need to get their finances back into even kill and they chose to go that direction. You have all these mm. other clubs, big clubs, who continue to operate while they are in debt and that is the choice they've taken and now they realise that with COVID-19, of course, that financially they are in a very you know deep hole and they need to patch it up really quickly and that's how they stumble into this plan which the Americans have been always used to and they, they decided that they, they want to give this a try. And, and I think, you know, it's at the expense of football. But that is a decision they decided to make. And, and they decided to go with the American model. I don't agree with the American model at all. At, at all. I think there are some merits in, in the system, in the draft system especially. But, you know, as a whole, 
a system without promotion and relegation just simply doesn't work for me. Mm. In my day job, I'm a, I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm kind of a capitalist in some way. So it'll be you know you know hypocritical of me to talk otherwise. But this society has changed, and football in Europe has welcomed money from overseas in the past thirty years with actually open arms, right? And capitalists they want to grow. Fundamentally, they need to grow constantly, really looking for new markets and such, right? And when you start to see markets stagnate, they ov- there's an obvious need to look for new products. What better way than to start a new league? Can you really blame them? Again, uh, I've, I've said this uh, earlier in the show. I understand it from a business. So is football a business or is the business just happens to be football? And that's where I think that this already we've gone. It is a business. And that to me, I have a fundamental issue with. It should, it should be a sport first with a business element on it. It's not. I've lost that argument. So therefore, I'm saying, listen, this is a natural corollary of where we want to go. If we can drag it back, great. But it's say, say for example, the UK installed some match-fixing governmental uh, limits on Liverpool. I guarantee you Real Madrid and Barcelona will not stick to those limits. I guarantee you <laughs> that um, some clubs would cheat if there was any kind of... Um, you're seeing it in, in rugby union. They, that went the money way and teams cheated. They, uh, they, they went over any, any wage restrictions you even see it in the united states in the, in that in that uh, bastion of capitalism how one team uh, dominates uh, you, you mentioned baseball just see how the yankees consistently are able to attract the best things because they've got the biggest markets so it's a business first in the states and not a sport and therein lies uh, uh, lies the fundamental problem because it's not the, the the 14 who are left in the premier league and i repeat this again it's those right the way down the scale who are just just taken out of the equation from grassroots football to local national football in Singapore, in Malaysia. The money just disappears and any chance of of, um, the socialist game where everybody is equal and you're only as good as your weakest player. Well, what they're trying to do is they're trying to just get rid of all the weakest players uh, who, who are the clubs. And there is a problem. I've lost that argument a long time ago. So I just think that this Super League isn't dead because I don't even think the teams have left the Super League contract because there's punitive damages in their contracts, which um, if you have a look at them, if they were to pull out, they can be punitively um, uh, charged by, by the Super League. This is not dead. Guarantee you that. Yeah, this ab- is just the very yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's a great point you brought up because as I was doing research for the show as well, I was looking through a couple of news articles and they went on to say that Arsenal could be fined as much as £8 million for pulling out. And uh, that's one of the reasons why Florentino Perez is uh, so confident that this will go ahead because there are bi- legally binding agreements in place. Absolutely. Well, time for another break. When we come back, we continue this conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Saturday. This is The Rant, and joining me in the show are Philip Go and Des Corkill. Uh, gentlemen, this is a fat- fascinating story. Of course, we can uh, take uh, it in so many directions, but I want to follow the money trail, The mon- I mean, where the, the money was flowing from. JP Morgan seems to be the main player here. They provided 3.5 billion euros grant to the founding clubs to spend on infrastructure and recovery from the impact of a COVID-19 pandemic. 
And one of the main players there was Ed Woodward, who, uh, who was appointed chief executive of Manchester United in 2013. He previously worked with the U.S. Investment Bank uh, in the M&A department before helping the Glazers family in a controversial takeover of the club in 2005. Uh, you know, I'll come to you, uh, Phil, on this. There's so many things that, you know, there's a lot of hidden hand behind uh, where this actually went. But uh, Ed Woodward seems to be one of the key characters here. Yeah, and he's, he's resigned, hasn't he? And the PR has gone around the fact, uh, has come out to say that he actually has decided to, de- to resign a month before this and that uh, it, has, it, has in, 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 it has no way any connection with what has just happened over the past week, which if you believe it, then you believe in Santa Claus and, and which I know lots of people <laughs> do believe in Santa Claus. You mean he's not real? But the, the, fact, <laughs> the fact of the man... <laughs> Sorry, Des. Uh, Western culture thing. Uh, in... in, in it, <laughs> In, in, in many ways, um, the, yeah, there are hidden hands. And we all know that if, if things are being decided in, in secret, you know, talks are being held in secret, when, you know, Ed Woodward can go and talk to Seferin, the, uh, the, the head of UEFA, one week and say, hey, we are, we're behind you. And then at the same time, he's actually, you know, trying to pull off a breakaway. Then he, he, you know that, you know, that there are lots of stronger motivations for these people apart from just the football. And m- money is, is obviously the, the strongest driver of them all. And I can understand how... COVID has made all these clubs a lot more desperate. We are, we are dealing with a new normal now that um, we've not had fans in the stands for the last year. Um, if, if at all, if, if at all the fans have been allowed in, it's just been a handful. Unlike, you know, two seasons ago when we've got sta- stadium heaving with football. And I, I think he, he's kind of forgotten the, the, the smaller fans, you know, the guys who actually come up with their 10, 20 quid every week to actually watch football. We've, we've gone from a situation before when you can pay £20 to watch football to you know, a, a select number of clubs being given the liberty to charge £50 uh, per, per ticket. And, I, I, you know, and, and it's just gone out of hand. It, we, we all like to think about the American model. We like to talk about the American model. The, the biggest American sport is baseball. And you can actually go and watch baseball for very little money compared to the money you have to spend to watch American uh, to, uh, to, to watch the English Premier League. So if there's any benefit to be gained from the American model, I hope they introduce that where people can start watching football again and not actually burn a, a, a big hole in their pockets. And it's because we've got so many different fans that don't need to go to the football matches week in, week out. Those that come in from Asia or wherever they are, who are willing to pay those £100 to actually watch those foot, uh, the, 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 the English football that you have this situation of guys like Woodward thinking, we don't need our local fans when we've got overseas fans who can pay, you know, three, four times more to watch the same things that we're producing every week. And that's where, you know, the money kind of makes them feel like, you know, there's, there's a lot more to be gained out there than to just concentrate on what we are doing right here in the UK. Mm. You know, there's, when, when you look at this whole situation with, uh, with COVID as well, because there's no fans in the stadium, so the ticketing revenue is uh, out of the way. It's only TV money, right? And at some point when they're planning this, they might, might have also planned for contingencies such as a fan backlash. Uh, but like Phil just said, they're just banking on the fact that there will be a lot of money coming, coming out of Asia. Do you think that's a fair statement in, in when you try and assess this and analyze the way they've gone about doing this? Yeah, I, I semi agree. I've, I've also got to got to go back in that um, 
it is expensive to watch football in the UK. And one, one of the big things that uh, Perez says was that uh, younger fans are not really engaging with football. They, they, he was very abusive to them, saying they have the, uh, uh, the attention span of a gnat, effectively, <laughs> which may or may not be true. <laughs> However, uh, one of the reasons why young fans aren't engaging is because it is very expensive. It's 50 quid a ticket at Anfield. And that's kind of subsidised. So you have you try to take your your two kids, just an example, uh, along to the football, and you're looking at two two hundred and fifty pound day with with the food, mm. with the transport, with the programmes, etc. Two hundred and fifty pounds a day, twenty times a year, is a significant chunk out of uh, out of any any budget. And uh, Liverpool is a working class area. There's already been protests in Liverpool, which is my my main knowledge base uh, about the ticket prices and uh, John Henry. Henry had to make a, a, a mea culpa there as well. He's had to make several mm. apologies to Liverpool fans in his involvement because he's caught on this balancing act between a billionaire business in a working class area, which, which is a, a real problem. So, yeah, the, the ticket prices is a self-imposed problem uh, that, that they put on themselves. And yeah, it'd be great to get cheaper, uh, cheaper tickets. Cheap, uh, tickets are cheap in Germany and their stadiums are, are, are really friendly and uh, yep. the atmospheres are really good. And it's not just, even though Bayern Munich keep on winning it, it's quite competitive a little bit further down the league. Uh, the, the other thing, mm. just to slightly go against uh, Phil on, I'd, uh, I'd, I want to defend Edward because my understanding is that he didn't know that this announcement was going to take place until a, a day or two before it was actually made. And he was taken by surprise as well. So, if you're going to blame people, blame those who um, kept it from the day-to-day workers. Uh, and I think Woodward, Woodward was as surprised as anyone. And that's why he's fallen on his sword early. All right. You know what? On, you, talking about Woodward, I just want to bring up a quote. Um, UEFA president Alexander Seferin, he branded Woodward as a snake in a very explosive press conference about the, when they were announcing the Super League. Right? He said that Woodward already signed Manchester United's uh, um, support. And then he was on the site talking to UFO on the Champions League on a phone call last week. Phil, so do you start to feel, you know, sorry for him? You think that you give him the benefit of the doubt? But I'll I tell you what, what really has happened is that the Manchester United fans, they wanted him out for a long, long time. And all of a sudden, they got their wish. The only people I feel sorry for in this football business are, are the fans and guys like us talking about it, to be honest with you, Sassy. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't feel sorry for Seferin. Seferin is a, is a viper, you know. If he, if, he wants to, if he wants to talk about Woodward being a snake, he's a viper. And, 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 and Gianni Infantino is a, is, is, is a basilisk. Call them what you want. <laughs> These guys out there in those positions, they are not in a position to, to enrich football. They are in a position to enrich themselves. And, and I, I don't trust them to run no football any every, a, a single minute. I, I just try to look back on how they have managed to, to take something that was built by the people and made it their own and decide to hawk it to the, to the highest bidder. And I think that's, that's a travesty. I remember the first time I went to England to watch football. It was 1999. I went to watch Charlton. It was an away match. I, I took, a, took a lift from a friend. We, we drove up in a car. And what struck me was... As we were going up to Derbyshire to watch the match against Derby County, there were cars heading the opposite direction, going to London, watching, watching football in London. And then three hours later, when everything was over, when we had our drinks and all of that, and we were travelling back to London, there were cars going the opposite direction. There were flags flying out of, the, out, of the weed, out of the cars and all of that. And the atmosphere is just amazing. And it made me realise why English football is, is so great. It's because the fan, the passion of the fans out there, They've taken the fans' passion, 
made it into this commodity, which is which is for them to 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 make money, and then they turn around and say the fans are not being fair to them when when they are not making them enough money to cover their own financial mismanagement, and that to me is is a huge thing. Balance your books. You guys mm. are put in there to balance your books. Get get your job done right, and then come and tell mm. us that we have, we've not been part of this journey, and and that's why the fans have been out up in arms because they feel the club is part of them. It may not necessarily be the fact that the club belongs to them, but they are part of the club, and the club is part of them, and they feel this extreme betrayal by the club, and that's why we mm. have this situation right now. You know, those of you who haven't watched that uh, Netflix series Sunderland Till I Die, if you want to understand what fandom is or what football club or local football club means to you, go and watch that because it's an amazing, amazing story. And I also had, uh, you know, Charlie Methuen on the show some time ago. But uh, Des, I want to come to you on this one. Does UEFA really need to take the blame here? Because we've got to start seeing people who are running the show. Any, do you think UEFA should take some responsibility for this? So the, the biggest irony of this is UEFA come out looking like the good guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In the, in the very same week, UEFA have pushed through uh, Champions League proposal changes, which may or may not be, be ratified, in which uh, two of the highest uh, coefficient clubs who don't qualify through the normal sources will make it into an expanded uh, champ um, UEFA Champions League. So UEFA, UEFA have got this cash cow called the UEFA Champions League. They've already expanded it from a Champions League to a smaller groups, now to the, to, the, to the long groups, and they're expanding it again. So they're seeing the money. It's purely about money. And they cannot say, oh, we're making this available to more teams because the, the, the champions of some of the clubs in Europe aren't even guaranteed a place in the Champions League, which to me just tells you that it's not about sport, it's about money. Mm -hmm. And there is the big issue, which I've been ranting on and on and on and on about for 15 plus years. And welcome to the party, everybody. But I, I, I really worry that we are too late to actually save this. So UEFA, the good guys, even though they are, they are raiding the banker, bank accounts as well. <laughs> I like that, you know, because you're right that nobody actually look at UFA and say, hey, hang on a second, what, what wrong have you been doing? And all of a sudden, they got this opportunity to clean up their image and look like the really good guys. Phil, just before we go, um, what do you see happening in the, in the next couple of weeks with this Super League saga? I, I think they'll pull back and say, sorry, we got caught out. And then as, as Des say, you know, they'll come back with a fresh attempt maybe in a year or two years time. Uh, there's no mm. doubt that this, this is not going away. Yeah. What about you, Des? Um, so, yeah, it's not going away. It's not going away by any stretch of the imagination unless there is legislation put in or the clubs voluntarily, <laughs> voluntarily put a cap <laughs> on themselves. That's not going to happen, is it? Um, just uh, uh, one, one thing that uh, I, a comment I saw on Twitter, I don't know who to account it to, but it made me giggle. You can tell that the guys who were in charge of this Super League don't know their football because the one thing that they could have done that would have pushed this through was if they said this European Super League would not have had VAR, they would have had absolute support from everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That's a really good one. On that note, gentlemen, thank you very much. Uh, you know, solid input as always. Uh, I'll speak to you next week. Brilliant. Thanks, Sassy. Thanks, thank you very much. Hey, and if you've got a chance, look at Gabriel Quack's goal in the Singapore Premier League. It is a beauty, mm. the one against Balestia. Local football is as important as the big game. 
Well, that's all the time we have here on Sports Talk Saturday. Make sure you tune in to tomorrow's show as I former Hull City and Geelang United defender Neil Allison in the hot seat. Till then, this is R. Sasikuma signing off for CNA 938.